Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Today's episode, we meet two award-winning writers of Charlotte Writers Club writing contests, Barbara Johnson for her nonfiction work and Roger Kohlberg for his short stories. We start with Roger reading his award-winning piece entitled At the Pond, where the main characters are the animals. Barbara's first reading is from her memoir in progress, an excerpt from her award-winning piece, Five Lies, about a young Barbara whose father wouldn't buy her the shoes she needed for school. Contest judge Michael Chitwood called it a rich and wonderfully detailed account of the pain and joy of innocent belief. Roger and Barbara read two other pieces on the show, with Roger reading from his award-winning piece, The Lucky One, and Barbara reading two other stories from a memoir in progress entitled A Desire to Kill and The Shotgun. Contest judge Robert Emmon called The Lucky One a mesmerizing and vividly told story of two men, long-ago friends, meeting again with one intending to help the other, where in a subtle but profound way, the writer probes each man's demons, leaving the reader to decide which one most needs help. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. These are the stories that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. At the pond. Here comes that damn lanky mountain dog again. If he gets to the dock, I'll have to fly across the pond and sit for a while on a limb of the locust tree. I lurk along the bank in the shade under the hemlocks. My dusty pale feathers make me hard to see in the shadows. I stand motionless on my long legs waiting patiently. The dog used to chase me away several times a day when he was younger. He's slowed down since his black muzzle started turning gray. I hunt at the pond early in the mornings before he wakes up. I'd hunt elsewhere to avoid the hassle, but the silver-haired man went to a lot of trouble to build this pond for me. He stocked it with tasty fish. They're mostly cream-colored with orange and black spots. Some have bronze, copper, or yellowish-gold patches. Those colors make them easy to see just below the surface of the muddy water. I'll put up with the dog to hunt here. I prefer these yummy morsels over what I could catch in the creek. The man also feeds other animals. I've seen him put out seeds and gooey stuff for the cardinals, and he started sprinkling corn around the edges of his garden. 
Oh, good. The dog doesn't see me. He's going away. I don't think his vision is as good as it once was. He used to catch and eat the groundhogs who dug holes in the dirt walls that hold back the water. But I haven't seen him do that lately. Come to think of it, I haven't seen any groundhogs around for a while. Now that the weather is cooler, the dog stays in his little house on the porch late into the morning. In another month or two, the pond water will be solid and I'll have to leave for a while. It's cold this morning and I'm hunting in my usual spot. Several deer are grazing near what's left of the, of the man's garden. I'm about to spear breakfast when a loud crack scares all the fish to the bottom. I look up the hill to see a deer tumbling down the slope toward the house. The man comes out later with a big knife and drags the deer into the driveway in front of the garage. I won't tell you what he did to the deer next. I always thought the dog was the dangerous one around here. Now I'm not so sure. Mrs. Johnson sounded angry and disappointed. I noticed her leather strap draped over her broad shoulders. She heaved and exhaled, then asked, Once and for all, Barbara, do you have your full costume? Do you even have black shoes? I looked up at her and lied. My daddy's getting me new shoes today. When I got home, I ran to daddy and told him that I wouldn't ask for anything for Christmas if he would get me new black shoes for May Day. Gal, I got me ten children and eight of them need shoes. I can't buy shoes for any of y'all. Don't ask me again. Just stay home on May Day. I got sucked from the kitchen stovepipe and dyed my old scuffed up white and black Oxfords. Then I went upstairs and started to pray. Dear God, I don't believe in you anymore. I don't believe that Moses parted the Red Sea or that Lazarus was raised from the dead. And I don't believe that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in a fiery furnace. If you can't make my daddy get me a pair of new shoes, how could you do all of that other stuff? Just in case you are real, I need new black shoes in the morning before I go to school. Amen for the last time. Just as I was preparing to go to bed, I saw car lights pull into our driveway. A slender Caucasian man threw a large bundle on our front porch and drove off. I ran downstairs to see what it was and heard Mama and Daddy talking. Ronald, white folks ain't got no business throwing stuff at us. You better go see what it is. It might be trouble. See, there you go again. You want me to look for trouble when I want to look at King Kong, Daddy said, as he dragged the bundle inside the hallway. It was probably Mr. Briggs up yonder giving us his children old clothes. Daddy looked up at Mama and grinned teasingly. Did you expect him to eat supper with us? Shit. What do you think, Mama snapped. Daddy dumped the contents onto the floor, and on top of the pile of clothing was a pair of black shoes. Friday, the next day, 
Mrs. Johnson saw me in my costume for the first time. Barbara, she said, come here, child. You look so beautiful in your new black shoes. Roger Colbert began writing short stories nine years ago, which was a bit of the road less traveled by for the man who obtained his college degree in economics and mathematics from Albion College in Michigan and followed it with a 34-year career with the Internal Revenue Service. Rogers always taught himself to write because in 1983, when computers were introduced to IRS field offices, Roger learned to write software and went on to create the Charlotte Software Development Center and implemented major systems nationwide. He admits he never did any creative writing while he worked for the IRS. He says he enjoyed reading excellent fiction in the form of the tax returns that landed on his desk. Submissions filled with real-life characters and a strange plot twist. Roger resides in Charlotte where he writes and participates in several Charlotte Writers Group critique groups. Barbara Johnson grew up in a sharecropping family in Leesburg and Blanche, North Carolina, where she was one of ten children. Her family moved around to five different farms by the time she was 16, and despite a number of obstacles, her father among them, she was the first of her siblings to finish high school and the only one to attend college, graduating in 1977 from Bennett College in Greensboro, North Carolina with a degree in sociology. After a rewarding career in telecommunications with AT&T, Barbara devotes much of her time to writing including her work on a memoir for Challenging Life. She has given voice to her writing in venues such as the Matthews Playhouse, Queen's University, and the Warehouse Performing Arts Center in Cornelius. Barbara currently resides in Charlotte with her husband, George Davis, where she is a member of Charlotte Writers Club and the North Carolina Writers Network. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Roger, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Barbara, welcome. Thank you. So you both love to write. Roger, you write short stories. And Barbara, you write your life stories. Um, why do you love writing, Roger? Oh, I don't know. Landis, I, when, after I retired, uh, I'm a vet, avid exerciser, and I walk mornings, and stories started popping in my head. In, on my walks and uh, my story to myself was well I don't really have a good ending for this for these stories and then one day um, a really good ending popped in my head and it called my bluff mm. so I went to uh, Best Buy and bought a new computer with word processing and a printer and got a table and chair and put it in front of a great window and I was hooked so Barbara Roger gets his ideas walking. Where do your ideas come to you? Well, I've always wanted to write since I was about 14 years of age. And I used to write little short stories, and I would hide them under my bed. And my mom would find them and, and read them. And one day I caught her, and she was so interested. And from that day on, I just loved to write. It's in me. It's something that I cannot not do. Mm. I'm at my happiest when I'm writing, and my thoughts come on paper. Now, you're both members of the Charlotte Writers Club. You've won contests there. You've gotten awards and with your writing. Uh, you're continuing to work on your craft. I know this because, Roger, you participate in several critique groups, and you've critiqued my own work <laughs> in those uh, forums. And, Barbara, you participate in writing workshops, including one I met you at at the North Carolina Writers Network. So what is it uh, about the process of getting critiques from others and critiquing others' works that helps you with your writing, Roger? 
Oh, I get uh, I get the best feedback from writers. It's uh, hard to hard to put it in a in one category, but they come at it from all different points of view and and uh, backgrounds, and every bit of feedback is is precious. Uh, my harshest critics I've I've learned are are the gems. Yeah. Once I get over the the initial visceral reaction to their to the harshness of their feedback, then I start to analyze and say, all right, get deeper into this story and figure out why they reacted the way they did. Yeah. What about you, Barbara? Why do you go to workshops and why do you work on your craft? Well, one thing, um, when someone's giving you a critique, it helps you to improve your writing. And you want to write so that the reader can understand why and what you're writing and they can feel the emotions that you felt during that particular time. I have gotten my, my best feedback from uh, different critique group, uh, groups, and I also um, take a writing class here in Charlotte as well, mm-hmm. uh, uh, over at um, Gilda Cyberson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gil- Gilda was on the podcast in season two. So. Yes, and the class, they so generous in giving feedback until it helps you to improve your writing. It helps you to think, to make it more clear and concise. So the two of you come to your uh, writing from different backgrounds. Roger, as I said in the opening, you grew up in Michigan. Um, you said, you've told me before and you had a normal childhood, but some might argue not so normal adulthood because you worked for the IRS. <laughs> so, yeah. What was it you did as a child to get punished that way? <laughs> Well, I was always good in math. Oh, were you? Okay, and yeah. that that led you to, to the to that uh, career. Not much creative writing going on at the IRS. I wrote a lot of tax law textbooks, auditing yeah. textbooks, yeah. computer manuals. And that, now you want to write things that people actually are interested in reading, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And Barbara, you grew up, uh, as we said in the opening, in a sharecropping family where work on the farm was seen really as more important to your father than school. Is that right? That is correct. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your growing up and what that was like. It was, it was really difficult. Um, Most of the time we could not go to school often because we were kept out of school to work on the farm and it was always something to do. You had to plant the tobacco, you had to harvest it and, um, in the wintertime, we were hungry a lot until the garden would come in. We lived off the land. The schoolwork was not, wasn't difficult. It's just that when you miss two days a week and you go back to school on the third day, you're lost. You have no idea where you are and what your assignments uh, were. And so it was, it was hard for me to watch my older siblings um, quit school because they had missed too many days. And you've got a story like that you're going to read a little later, a, a yes. little later in, in the show here that really speaks to that uh, education piece. But uh, I, I'm just a little curious, um, what was it that was sort of your internal strength that helped you get out of, you know, what was very difficult circumstances to get the education you needed? Well, I was determined not to live in poverty. I was determined... Um, to live a better life than my mom and dad. 
I listened to my teachers in school when they told me that as an African-American in the 60s that opportunities would be afforded us if we were educated. And so I wanted to be among that group of educated people who I could improve my, my standard of living. And hopefully if I, because I saw it as a curse in, in my family, and so I felt like if I improve my standard of living, then I could encourage my other younger siblings to improve their standard of living as well. Mm. So I felt like I had to finish high school, I had to go to college, and I had to better myself because I wanted to set the example in my family. And, and Roger, you, you said you had a normal childhood, but what does that mean exactly? <laughs> What's normal in Michigan? Well, Michigan, uh, I uh, did a lot of uh, did a lot of playing golf when I was in high school. I learned how to play golf. Uh, I started off playing a lot of little league baseball, but I wasn't very good. So, well, you're going to read a story about baseball. So, did that did that sort of inspire your your love of the yeah, game? Baseball's always been a uh, a love of mine. But I played a lot of golf. Played on the golf team in high school and college. Played golf all through my life. So. That's playing playing uh, playing golf in the in the spring in Michigan was a challenge. You played in April and May, which is like yeah, short January and February here <laughs> in North Carolina. <laughs> now, now Barbara talked about living off the land. You um, you just got back from a hiking trip where you were trying to live off the land, but only for two days, right? <laughs> yeah, three nights, three nights, <laughs> three, three nights, and that about killed you, right? <laughs> uh, my back is still barely speaking to okay. me. Okay, and then your first piece here at the pond is it involves. Yeah, what happens among the animals? Yeah, it was, what, what inspired that? It was written as a as a like a classroom exercise, a, a Burroughs book, writing fiction, and one of the exercises was write something from the point of view of someone or something other than a human. So I just whipped this up as a as an exercise, and then some months later the charlotte writers club had a contest for flash fiction so i squashed it down to under 500 words and won, yeah. won a prize yeah so. and, and is this uh what kind of bird is it this this hunting these fish it's a heron it's a heron okay uh and what what made it occur to you that the heron should be more afraid of the human than the dog well the the pond the pond is a, that i visualize is a pond on a farm of a friend of mine who lives in west virginia so I've seen this heron at his pond trying to eat his koi that are mm -hmm. in his pond. And uh, my friend who lives in West Virginia, uh, he lives off the land, and he's been known to shoot deer, grazing corn alongside his garden, out his bedroom window. <laughs> so so I just put this. The heron has a right to be This is a story about my friend's farm in West Virginia and okay. why the heron ought to have fear of that farmer. And Barbara, your opening read, Five Lies, um, I heard you read this at the Charlotte Writers Club as I heard Roger read his piece. This is a true story from your childhood, right? It really is. Mm -hmm. I, I was um, about 11, 10 or 11, and I wanted to participate in May Day so badly, but we had to have a particular costume. And I knew that my parents couldn't afford it, but I kept begging. I just kept begging for new shoes because my teacher told us we had to have black shoes, the girls. And each time my teacher would ask me if I had my shoes or my costume, I would lie. 
I was going to say, you start, you, you tell, there's one lie in this little excerpt you read, but there are four lies that happened before that, right? Four <laughs> lies before. I, every time she would ask, I would look at her and just lie. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I, yeah. I got it. Yes, ma'am. I'm ready. Mm-hmm. And somehow that miracle happened for me the night before May Day. I, today it makes me just continue my faith. It makes me believe. It chills just comes over my body every time I think about it because it happened exactly that way. Well, you kind of put God on the spot there in your prayer, right? You, you, you told, yes. <laughs> you told, well, I mean, if you, if you can't even get me some black shoes, I, I, I'm not going to believe all these things, Joan and the whale and everything else, you know. And and I said that and more in my prayer. It's just that I had to cut it down, you know, for the for the reading and everything. Yeah. But I, I I really did challenge God there as a as an eleven year old. I didn't know any better. Right. I didn't know he he's not really Santa Claus, but he came mm-hmm. through for the shoes. So we're going to transition now to um, two more reads. One by you, Barbara, uh, from your excerpt uh, from your memoir and process, and one from uh, Roger, but. The piece you're going to read now is called A Desire to Kill. Can you tell us a little bit about that before you read it? Because you're going to read an excerpt from it. Certainly. Um, I was brokenhearted, and um, I was really in love with this with this young man when I was younger. And we broke up, and I thought it was all his fault. And I was so hurt and angry that I really had planned to, to kill him. And I called my girlfriend because I wanted her to be my alibi. And instead of her being my alibi, she was really a good friend, more than I deserve. And she forced me to see a psychiatrist. And that's how I ended up in the psychiatrist's office. Well, he must have done something more to you than just say we're breaking it off to get you thinking murder. I just don't see you as I'm looking across the table here. You don't strike me as the kind of person who would think about murder. I know, but... You, you met me after I had visited a psychiatrist for, okay. for several months. This, this was, is a good advertisement for psychiatrists. <laughs> I, was a, I was a different person then, okay. and I have grown and I've learned I've forgiven. Um, but before, I was a mean, bitter person. Hmm. And uh, loving when everything was going good, but when things were not going good, I could be that mean, bitter woman. Is that because of the past that you have? Well, the way the psychiatrist kind of put it, my childhood had a lot to do with my anger Hmm. and so I had to really bring it forefront and deal with my anger and my childhood and as um, he actually said my desire to kill really had nothing to do with my ex-boyfriend right because what you're going to read in the story here I think there's some things that come out here mm -hmm. that would make anyone angry right right, so I'm going to have you uh, do that for us now This was my first visit to a psychiatrist, and I wondered if he was smart enough to help rid me of the hate and bitterness I'd felt toward my ex-boyfriend whom I had planned to kill. Dr. Alice asked me to first discuss what I remembered about my childhood, then we would discuss why I wanted to commit a murder. Well, I said, I remember working in tobacco fields from sunup to sundown even before I started school. I remember being cold and hungry, hot and hungry, mostly being hungry. I remember my oldest sister's boyfriend molesting me on the first day of school when I was six years old. I told her, and she pat on my naked bottom, 
while her boyfriend stood and watched. She said that I was too fast. I also remember one of the landowners and his adult son. They molested me for several years. I was too afraid to tell anyone, afraid that they would make us move from their land, afraid that daddy would blame me for causing trouble. I remember begging daddy to let me go to school instead of working on the farm. I was always scared that I would not graduate high school because of frequent absences. And I remember that when daddy got upset with me, he would tell me that I was not worth the salt that I ate. When Dr. Alice asked me how these memories made me feel, I couldn't answer. I had not even gotten to the worst part. So, Barbara, that's uh, difficult to listen to. Is it difficult for you to read it again? It's difficult for me to read it. It's difficult for me to even think about it, and it was difficult for me to write it. But it had to be written. Even now, my, my two adult daughters can't read it because they cry and become depressed whenever they read about my childhood. And sometimes I write it, and I still cry about it, and it still still bothers me. But the more I read about it and talk about it, the better I'm able to um, accept it, I guess. And you're writing all of these stories down, um, and you're going to put them all together as part of a memoir, right? Yes. Um, has that process of writing these stories down been helpful, hurtful, a little of both? Uh, it's a little of both. Some days I can write it and uh, don't feel so sad about it. But in other days, I, I close my door and I cry 10 or 15 minutes and I go back to writing. I mean, this last line after listening to you read um, struck me. You said you couldn't answer because you hadn't even gotten to the worst part. So there's something in this memoir that's even worse than what you just read? Oh, yes. A lot of stuff. Hmm. Well, you're sitting here. Yes, I'm sitting here, but... Um, how you, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, I guess. I'm doing the best that I can right now. Let me just put it that way. And um, I written this memoir. I did take out some of the worst parts because... I don't want my family to be so embarrassed or angry because most of them don't want me to write it because sometimes the truth is very painful. Mm. And I don't want to bring up old things that happened to me because other people prefer to forget it and let it go. But I can't forget it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm writing it hopefully for those people who read it, they have children, older people, I want them to be able to avoid some of the mistakes that I made and some of the mistakes that other people who had a relationship with me avoid those mistakes. Mm. And it's not all about child abuse. There are different types of abuses that if people would just read, they'll know what to do and what not to do. Because even though we are young children, you know, we're going to be adults one day, and we're going to tell somebody one way or another. So don't think the things that you're going to do um, that's, that's um, 
immoral, it's not going to ever come to light because mm-hmm. it will. All right, we're going to shift just a minute to uh, Roger's uh, story, the lucky one. Roger, you've got some uh, excerpts you're going to read from the story here. And before we, before we have you read, I want to set this up. This is this is a short story, so it's fiction, but it's uh, it's grounded in some truth, right? I mean, you've got uh, two high school baseball teammates in 1965, and uh, 40 years later, one of them decides, Dean, who's the narrator, decides to take his buddy Marty on a baseball odyssey to try to help him or cure him or something, right? Yes. Yeah, and and so how, how did that come to you, this idea of uh, two men, many years later, one of them deciding he needs to help the other, and he's going to take him to a baseball game to do it? Well, it's based on a real trip that I took with a high school friend. Uh, it's been fictionalized tremendously, so it's not a, it's not a memoir or a true story. Um, but I actually did take a, take a trip, and my friend did serve in Vietnam, and uh, I did not. So, were you of age at that time, or? Yes, I've. One one true part is that I did fail my induction physical, so I was 4F. So you've got time. this character Dean, who is the narrator, and he failed his physical, and he thinks he's the one that needs to help Marty. Yeah, he wants to make it up to him. He felt like he got he got the better breaks. Marty had to go to yeah. Vietnam. Marty suffered yeah, Dean, from post-traumatic stress syndrome. Dean went to college and graduated. <clears throat> Marty flunked out. Uh, Dean got lucky and failed his induction physical. Marty passed and served three combat tours in Vietnam. Dean's more of a liberal, peacenik-type character. Marty, f- more conservative. He's okay with, with war. Um, as the story rolls on, we find out that Dean is an active alcoholic. Uh, Marty was, but he's uh, now an Alcoholics Anonymous sponsor. So the question is, as we read through this, who really needs the most help? So let's let's leave it at that and start with uh, these excerpts. You're going to read uh, a few of these, um, and then after that, we're going to take our our break. The lucky one. I open the door to Marty's trailer and I am seduced by the portrait of a nude young woman lying on her belly. Tigress stripes are tattooed from her mostly shaved head down the neck and back to her bare ass. A blonde striped mane flows from a ribbon of hair in the center of her head down the spine all the way to her crack. Blood drips from Chloe Grace Moretz's forehead into her eye in a Carrie movie poster. More surrealistic artwork covers every square inch of Marty's walls, suggesting a rich, imaginary life with young female actresses. I don't know how anyone can live like this. I can only imagine the torturous traumas Marty suffered in three combat tours. But that was long ago. Enough years have passed to dull the memories of the Vietnam War. Marty's had ample time to extricate himself from this desolate Ann Arbor trailer park, but he's still stuck here. In the morning, I'll rescue Marty from his monastery and escort him on a baseball odyssey to see games in Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Detroit. It's been a long time, but maybe some baseball therapy will help turn his life around. 
The next morning, cruising south through Ohio down I-75 toward Cincinnati, I flash back to 1969. Remember our induction physical? After they had us stripped down to shorts and shoes, I heard your voice in the back yelling, Okay, you maggots, line up. Briefs on the left, boxers on the right. First row, Fruit of the Loom. Second row, Jockey Haynes and Munzingware. Last row, Pennies and Sears. You had the whole room laughing. Yeah, then some asshole shouted, What about Commando? Marty, that was me. That was the last time I laughed for the next four years. Marty stares out the window at a soybean field. You're one lucky son of a bitch. You could fall through the floor of an outhouse and find buried treasure. As we near downtown Cincinnati, we pass Mitchell Avenue, where I used to exit on the way to my first job. My boss despised peaceniks. That fascist said he'd fire me if I didn't get rid of my faded Eugene McCarthy bumper sticker. After work, I'd pop a cold one as I watched the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. I'd be on my second one when Walter ended his broadcast with a body count of U.S. killed in action, a nightly reminder of my survivor shame, as if I could ever forget. I'd curl up on the couch with my knees drawn to my chest and shiver. My country had become estranged from peace. Peace was nearly strangled by the King and Kennedy assassinations in 1968. What was left to peace was beaten to death in the streets of Chicago at the Democratic Convention. In a last act of humiliation, its corpse was left hanging on the steps of the Capitol where it could witness the Nixon inauguration. I scraped off Eugene. Blessed are the peacemakers my ass, for they will be called traitors. In Pittsburgh the next morning, we walked to the ballpark across the Allegheny River on the Roberto Clemente Bridge. After the game, we pass a weathered man seated near the bridge entrance holding a sign, please help a homeless vet. Marty kneels next to him while I dodge oncoming pedestrian traffic streaming out of the ballpark. I move next to Marty, hoping he'll take the hint that we should get going. Marty looks up at me. Have you got a few bucks? I stuff three ones into his palm. Marty glances at the money, stands and faces me with his hand held out. He gives me a look that says, Don't be such a cheap shit. I give him a 20. He'll just drink it. Marty looks up from the bills. What were you going to do with it? Marty kneels again and tucks the money into the fellow's shirt pocket. Why bother trying to save a lost soul? Don't say that. No souls are ever lost. I asked him what he'd miss most after he died. Sonny said he already misses his grandkids. His daughter won't let him visit when he's drinking and living on the street. Did you think you could help him? I encouraged Sonny not to give up. He's cleaned up before, and he might again. Dean, what will you miss most after you're dead? I thought of my kids who no longer invite me to their homes, not even for the holidays. I don't know, maybe baseball. Baseball? What about your children, your wife? You mean X. I haven't spoken to her in ten years. What about you? I'd miss my son, 
and being an AA sponsor. I didn't know you were a sponsor. All right, listeners, when we come back, we're going to hear the uh, ending of Roger's piece, The Lucky One. We're also going to hear another story from Barbara Johnson's memoir, which is entitled The Shotgun. We'll also do a little bit of the Riding Life segment, uh, so stay with us. Uh, Good stuff to come. Hey, listeners, I'm at the uh, Uptown Library branch, uh, Charlotte McMurray Library, with historian and resident uh, Tom Hanchett. We're talking books today, books that are available in the library. Tom, you got a couple of books. Uh, one that I see right here uh, by Kathy Izzard. She was actually on the podcast. So tell us about the book. It's called The Hundred Story Home. And it's not a hundred levels to live on in the home. It's a hundred stories that came together to um, create housing for the formerly homeless in Charlotte. Nationally known program called Housing First that's been very successful here. And the 100-story home will just grab your heart, uh, but it'll also engage your brain because we can make a better city. And and it did for me because I had the chance to interview Kathy in a live podcast. Listeners, you can find that as part of of Season 3 of the podcast. Just go to the website, shoulderspodcast.com, search Season 3, and you'll find it. Or on Apple Podcasts. Tom, what's this other book here? This is a, a pretty new book by Sam Canones, and it's called Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Imi- Epidemic. Mm. And it looks on one hand at the heroin that's been illegally imported into the United States, but on the other hand at the opioids that have been legally overprescribed um, and that have addicted a whole generation of Americans. That's become a major problem in this country now. And there has been some legislation recently, some bipartisan legislation in, in Congress, believe it or not, to try to address this very issue. Um, the Dreamland book, I think, is one of the reasons for that. Mm-hmm. And the Dreamland book makes the point that these addictions are particularly attacking wealthy areas. One chapter of Dreamland by Sam Canones is set in South Charlotte. Mm. Well, speaking of addictions, if you're addicted to books, we're surrounded by books here at the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Uh, Tom, it's been great. If you can find out more, uh, go to cmlibrary.org or just stop by any branch. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. Hey, listeners, we're back with uh, Roger Kohlberg and uh, Barbara Johnson, both uh, writers who have done well in contests. Uh, Roger doing short stories and Barbara writing uh, memoir pieces. Roger, in listening to your excerpts from The Lucky One, I'm not sure who needs more help. Well, the, um, the one who's offering to help or the one who allegedly he thinks needs the help. I'm not sure either. Uh, a couple of quotes inspired this story, uh, one by Jose Narosky. In war, there are no unwounded soldiers. And another one from Mark Vonnegut, Kurt's son. He said, my guess is there are as many disabled and deeply scarred ex-hippies as there are Vietnam vets. Yeah, that's interesting um, because the narrator here is drinking, doesn't have much patience for his friend who's going to help, you know, the vet in need. Dean says, well, he's just going to use it to drink. And he turns and says, well, what the hell are you going to use it for? You know, <laughs> and so 
So you know, then you're you're kind of setting us up for for the for the coming of the end here, and in, in the last couple of excerpts here um, toward the end, um, Dean's been drinking pretty much at every opportunity, right? Yes, yeah. yes, throughout the whole story, uh, yeah. every and meal, every. So chance. he's the narrator, and he's gone to help his friend who did serve in the war, and after eating at a restaurant, and Marty's been watching Dean drink a pitcher of beer. We pick up with the story there. When I came home from Nam. I drank like that. Relief was always temporary. I pour another glass from the pitcher. Marty waits for me to take a swallow. It took me years to figure out it wasn't my fault. All those friends blown apart right next to me. Why not me? I finish my glass and pour another. Marty has more to say. I let my past demons torment me right out of the best radio DJ job I ever had because I couldn't show up for my shift. Tell me, Dean, what still haunts you? I thought that goddamn war would never end. The body counts on the nightly news went on for years. Marty says nothing, waiting for me to continue. Every one of those soldiers died in my place. That took a lot of courage for you to open up. All these years, I thought you were the lucky one. When I realized what I'd done, I pulled my ball cap down over my eyes. I'd screwed up and let my beer start talking, revealing what was none of anybody's business. I'd guarded that secret for decades. No one wants to hear whining from a lucky bastard who didn't have to face combat. Only those who got shot at have the right to feel guilty about still being alive. Moving ahead to the ending, Dean has become increasingly irritated at Marty's hypersensitivity to sounds, whether it's songs playing on a car stereo, a hotel band playing 11 floors below, shrill squeals of excited children at a food court, or pulsating bass notes emanating from a dinner club. By the end, Dean has become rankled at the manifestations of Marty's PTSD. That night in the hotel, Marty watches Let Me In on HBO, starring 13-year-old Chloe Grace Moretz as a young vampire. I'm awakened from my snooze by Marty complaining to the hotel management about music coming from the room next door. He hangs up the phone and catches me gawking. Don't you hear it? I hunt for the remote and mute the TV. I do hear a bit of bass. Whoop, whoop. That's it. Some people have no consideration. When the music continues, he decides to pay the neighbors a visit. I stand in our doorway watching him pound. Fortunately, they have the good sense not to answer their door. Marty returns to the room and calls the front desk again. I must have fallen asleep. I'm awakened by Marty wheeling in a luggage cart. We're changing rooms. I got the last one available up on the 14th floor. Pack your things. I stare dumbfounded as he rounds up his stuff and zips up his suitcase. Here's your key. You can have the cart. As I watch him tote his bag down the hallway, I realize Marty's soul is still MIA in Benoit. Later, As I roll the luggage cart down the hallway, I know I'm in way over my head. I tried to help him, but his anguish and suffering are more than I can handle. 
Marty is now unstable and dangerous. I pause at the elevators. The up button leads to the 14th floor and another night with Marty. Down leads to my car, the highway, and freedom from Marty's craziness. I push down. I'm southbound on I-77 passing through Akron when my cell phone first rings. It rings three more times in the next hour before I pull off into a rest area and shut it off. So Roger, um, at the end of this story, Dean, the narrator, has had enough, doesn't think he can help his friend, but uh, do you think it's the memories of, uh, or the guilt that's sort of driving him at this point? Yeah, well, they're both, they're both a mess. I mean, Marty's got active PTSD, never, apparently, apparently untreated. And Dean's uh, an alcoholic who hasn't hit bottom, so they're, a, they're quite a pair. So, so we're left with this. Who, who is really the lucky one? Um, Dean wasn't so lucky as his friend Marty thought he was. Uh, when, you, when you failed your physical, how did you feel about it? Well, I remember, I remember coming home. Uh, the, the bus that took me to the physical took me home, and I walked up my street to my house, and I walked up the driveway and my grandmother was standing in the kitchen looking out the window. She saw me coming up the driveway, and she ran down the driveway in her apron. And we danced in, the, in my driveway. <laughs> so it was a very happy moment. Okay. So, and what was it? I saw it. Was it feet? What, what was it that led to the failure? True story. 20-something-year-old me, who got lucky with a heart murmur, at, at, uh, at age 66, had to have open heart surgery to replace that aortic valve. Wow! So uh, yeah. it comes around. It comes Com- around. <laughs> comes around. And over your life, as you were watching, you know, as Dean was, the the body counts and your friends had gone off, and you didn't. How, how did you feel about it? That that was troubling. That was troubling to to know that that uh, I dodged the bullet. Hmm. That was troubling. It, the whole the whole Vietnam experience. I was. Uh, I graduated high school in 1965. The war was raging then, and it raged on for 10 more years before it finally collapsed in 1975. Those were 10 10 divisive years in this country. It tore this country apart Mm -hmm. like nothing else I I could imagine. Well, that's kind of a good transition. He says, Roger says he dodged the bullet, and the title of your next uh, story is The Shotgun, Barbara. Yeah, I dodged it, too. <laughs> he, he dodged it, too. <laughs> Any setup you want to do on this piece here? Well, yes. This, is, this was in 1969, and um, matter of fact, my brother was in Vietnam, so I was the oldest child at home, and my father depended on me so much because I was the oldest child to help him on the farm. The shotgun. The last week in May 1969, I needed to take final exams, and Daddy needed me to help plant tobacco. You see, we were sharecroppers, and farm work came before schoolwork. On Monday, I asked Daddy to allow me to go to school for three consecutive days to take my final exams. I wanted to pass to the 12th grade. Shit, gal. I don't care if you pass to the 12th grade or not, Daddy said. 
Education ain't shit. It ain't everything. The only school you're going to see this week is that biker field. School is everything to me, I blurted out. You've made six of your ten children quit school to work on somebody else's farm. Well, Daddy, I ain't quitting. Daddy balled his hands into fists and walked closer to me. Don't tell no shit-ass lie on me, gal. I ain't made none of my children quit school. Daddy's lack of understanding amazed me. I softened my tone. You made them miss too many days to pass to the next level. Who wants to be 17 years old in the ninth grade? They were embarrassed, so they quit. Daddy relaxed his fists and lowered his voice. Well, you ain't going to school this week, so get ready for the fields. I turned to Mama. Please talk to Daddy. I must go to school today to take my final exams. Mama squinted her eyes. You heard your daddy. Get ready for the fields. You can't go against your daddy. Several tears slid down my face and dropped to the floor. I took a deep breath. Well, I said, I am going to school today because I have to. I will not end up working on somebody's farm, being somebody's maid or getting on welfare. And I will not become a criminal in order to survive. I don't know what I'm going to do when I get grown, but I know what I ain't going to do. I started toward the front door. Daddy became furious. Gal, you don't tell me what you're going to do. If you try to get on that shit-ass bus, I'll take my shotgun and blow your head off. I said you ain't going to school this week, and you ain't going. He turned around and stared at the shotgun, hanging high above the doorpost. Mama grabbed my arm in a panic. My man, put your books down, child. Just put your books down. Then it'll be all right. I stopped and looked Mama in the eye. My legs were trembling and my stomach ached. I told her that I would work in tobacco once I returned from school and work all day on Saturday and Sunday. But you can't go. She didn't finish her sentence. I eased her hand off my arm. Mama, I go to school today or I die today. It's one or the other. So fortunately, Barbara, uh, he didn't pull out the shotgun. You got on the bus. You went to school. I'm still sitting here. <laughs> yes, I, I did go to school. Were there light moments in your childhood? Are there fun stories in here that uh, worked their way into your memoir? Well, I never had a lot of fun as a child, yeah. really. I guess you could say it, my, my childhood was um, cut short. Mm. But I, I do have some, some good memories. Um, one was when my, my brother... We had to go to school, and we had to cross a creek. And one day it rained so hard that the creek was overflowed the banks, and we had no way to get home. Mm. And my brother, uh, I was about eight or nine, and he put me on his back. <laughs> and we practiced. He practiced that jump back and forth. Mm-hmm. 
before he put me on his back. And he put me on his back, and then he leaped across the pond. And we landed on the other side, and when we got up, he looked at me, and he said, we look like two swamp monsters. <laughs> and I, and I, I, thought that was a, I thought that was a good one. That's good. But uh, we, we played games and stuff. We had fun sometimes. Good. All right, Barbara, you got one that also attracted my attention. It's called Thumbtacks. T- tell me about Thumbtacks. Well, Thumbtacks is when I was um, in middle school. This young boy, this young man was bullying me uh, about my appearance and everything. And uh, when I would tell the teacher, she wouldn't say anything to him about it because he was a popular boy. So I decided I was going to do something about it myself. And so I got some Thumbtacks. And one morning when he got ready to sit in his seat as he was going down, I threw these thumbtacks thumbtacks in his seat, and he sat down on the thumbtacks. And, and you're still smiling about it. Yes, you? yes, I felt good about it. I'm sorry, but I do. Because he, because he stopped bullying me. Yeah, well, okay, so it worked. All right, so look, we're going uh, to shift to something uh, that I do in the show called the writing life segment. So this is where we just asked a few questions about uh, your writing life and what led you to writing. Uh, start off with a question here uh, for Roger. Um, were there a lot of books in your life as a child, and did those influence your love of writing? Not so many. Uh, we didn't have a lot of books around the house, and my my interest in in reading got started really in high school. I, I remember a, a 11th grade English teacher loaning me a book from her personal library that uh, that got me hooked. I think it was about Hiroshima. Hmm. And uh, that's, that's, I think, one of the first books I actually read from, read from beginning to end and, and enjoyed. Now, Barbara, you, you really, education was so important to you. Were you sneaking book home? Did you go to the library? Were books important to you as a child? Books are very important, and I would bring books home from the library because we had no books at home. The only book that we had at home was a couple of Bibles. And um, I loved to read, but I wasn't always allowed to read. For whatever reason, when my father saw me reading, he thought that meant I wanted to go to school the next day. So a lot of times when he saw me reading, he would tell me, put the book down. Hmm. And so sometimes I had to sneak and, and read. So I do this little thing. I did it in a couple seasons. I'm going to do it now just to kind of get a feel for how y'all go about your writing. Um, We can play it together. You can pick one or the other, neither or both. Okay, so uh, ink, pen, or keyboard, Roger? Oh, I write with a pen. Pen. How about you, Barbara? Keyboard. Keyboard, all right. Dictionary or spell check? Uh, Spell check. Dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we can get we, we, we can get it this different ways, right? I and mean, you can still come up with good stuff. All right. I, how about this? Outline or free flow? I've done both. You've done both. I you? prefer outline. You do a little outline ahead of time. Okay. Uh, in the light of day or the dark of night, when do you like to write? Light of day. Light of day for you? I like to start around 6.30 in the morning. Mm. Mm-hmm. Does that help you get your day started? No, I think it's when I have my clearest thoughts. Hmm. I think I write better when my mind is is clear and free from a good night's rest because about 11 o'clock, all kinds of thoughts are uh, Mm -hmm. in my mind by that time. What are you doing at 6.30 in the morning, Roger? Well, this time of year, I'm I'm out walking to beat the heat. I get my exercise done early, 
and then when that's behind me, then I then I start writing. Okay. Do y'all write uh, with complete quiet, or do you have some music in the background? I always have some kind of music on. I like quietness. There you go. Okay. <laughs> uh, writing the first draft or revising it? How about you, Roger? Which do I prefer? Yes. I like the revising. I like okay. the revising. Like to fix it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can see all that's wrong with it. But you've got to do the first draft. <laughs> How about you? I, li- I like the first draft because as I think I want to hurry up and get it on paper, mm-hmm. I can revise and revise later. Some some authors who've been on the show have said, you know, they edit as they go. Uh, others have said, no, we want to get it all out on the page first and come back. Which which do y'all prefer? Well, for a, to get the first draft down, I I just write as as fast as I can to to get all the story down. So I don't try to change or fix mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. I, and it's often really bad when I'm done with it. But at least I got it. I got something. That got sounds like your approach too. Well, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right, uh, writing the work or submitting it to uh, contests or for publication, which do you like better? Well, up until up until winning this contest, <laughs> I, had, <laughs> I hadn't had much. You didn't have to make that had, decision. I hadn't right? tried much, but I said this, uh, winning, winning this award has given me a, a new boost of confidence to, uh, to begin submitting more of my stuff for publication. Good. How about you, Barbara? I, I think uh, Roger is is on point. It it uh, winning a contest will give it gave me a, a, a humongous boost. Mm-hmm. But uh, I like writing whether I win a contest or not. Right. I know I'm going to continue to write, and I know I get my memoir published one way or another. One way or another. So true, false. I often surprise myself with where my writing takes me. Roger. True. How about you? Well, false. False. You're not surprised. No. You know where you're going when you get started? Yes. Yeah, okay. Routine is an important part of my writing process. True or false? True. 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 Yeah, y'all, sounds like you exercise first, Roger, and then get going, and you start early and then get it on paper. Writing a first draft is like a box of chocolates. I sometimes don't know what I'm going to get. That's true, too. <laughs> That's true, too. Even, even though you have an outline, sometimes you deviate. Yeah. Because the thoughts are there and you didn't put it in your outline, but it's too good for to, to not put it there, to mm-hmm. put it on paper. Mm-hmm. So that's true. For me, I think the surprises come later when I, when I ask the question, uh, go, how, do you, how am I going to take this deeper, mm-hmm. take it to another level? And then I find, I find aspects of the story I, I didn't see early when I, when I first envisioned it. All right, last question. This is a, you know, more of an essay question. <laughs> You can answer this one, but uh, and I think, uh, I think Barbara, you may have already hinted at this answer early, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you now. I write because because I have stories to tell. Roger, how about you, Barbara? I write because I have to. Okay. Well, I'm so glad that both of you chose to spend some time with me today, talking about your writing and sharing your work. Uh, it's good stuff, and uh, you know I know that. Uh, Know that you're going to put some more good stuff out there. And Barbara, good, good luck getting your memoir published and ironed out. Roger, the next story. Thank you all for being on the show. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we have John Buchan. John is the author of Code of the Forest, where we find ourselves at the intersection of good old boy politics and an attack on the free press. 
Uh, in John's novel, a powerful South Carolina senator works hard to take down publisher Wade McNabb's small-town newspaper after a story prints exposes high-level political corruption. And to fend off that threat, McNabb forms an uneasy relationship with young lawyer Kate Stewart, and together they put everything on the line to protect the newspaper's confidential source in a lawsuit that could bring ruin to both of them. It's a nice connection between political thriller and legal thriller. Uh, and the first sentence of the book starts out with the antagonist, I love this name, Senator Buck Ravenel. He's hunkered in the chill of the low country dome, pondering ducks and politics. For periodic updates about the show and upcoming authors, please sign up for the podcast email list at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We promise not to spam you because Landis says that takes too much time. And if you do sign up as a thank you, Landis will give you an ebook complete with illustrations, his first in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our five sponsors and their resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can listen to Charlotte Readers Podcast episodes for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is available on social media, on Facebook at Charlotte Readers Podcast, on Twitter at Charlotte Reader, on Instagram and on LinkedIn at Landis Wade. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>